Father, we thank you for the great privilege that we all have to come together this morning and to be encouragements to one another. Lord, help us uh, to not underestimate the value of coming together like we do on a Sunday morning. Um, we're not simply coming together just as a matter of course or as a rote habit, Lord, but the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells within each one of us. And so when we come together, uh, we encounter Christ in each other. And if we love the Lord Jesus, we should love to come together uh, because Christ is in each one of us and we get a taste of him in our interactions with one another. And Lord, we pray that through your word this morning that you would uh, Conform us to the image of your Son so that Christ may shine out of our lives all the more, um, so that our times together uh, would be even sweeter because uh, we see Christ more in one another through his Holy Spirit. Lord, may you have your way in us as we study your word together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. We're going to be finishing the chapter looking at uh, verses 8 through 13. So turn to 1 Corinthians. And I'll read these verses for us. Verse 8, Paul writes, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. When a guy buys an engagement ring for his wife-to-be, why is it that he buys a ring that is made up of precious metals and precious stones? Why doesn't he just try to cut cost and get a little rubber band and slip that on her finger? It's because of what the ring is supposed to symbolize. Love lasts, at least as God defines it. And so the man buys a ring that is made up of materials that are going to last as a symbol of his love for her that will stand the test of time no matter what. That's what love does. Love lasts. It doesn't corrode over time and fade away. It's not done away with. It lasts. And this is something that the Corinthian believers had become ignorant of. They were acting as if the spiritual gifts were the things that would last forever. They thought that they had arrived spiritually. That's what we've seen as we've gone through this letter. They were puffed up. They thought that they had arrived. And they probably thought that their miraculous gifts were the proof of their spiritual perfection, the kind of crown that they wore. What they didn't realize was that their lovelessness proved the exact opposite. They were actually still infants in Christ. They were spiritual ignoramuses. They were spiritually stupid. Remember what, remember what Paul said back in chapter 8. 
of this letter. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. He said there, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. These believers thought that they knew it all, but their lovelessness showed that they did not know as they ought to have known. And so, as Paul says in chapter 12 and verse 1, remember what he said there? What, what was his purpose in writing chapters 12, 13, and 14? Look at chapter 12, verse 1. He said, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, or spiritual things, I do not want you to be unaware, or I do not want you to be ignorant. Throughout the course of these chapters, Paul is setting out to remove their pride-induced ignorance about spiritual things. And chapter 13 is the most potent medicine that Paul can give them to awaken them up out of their spiritual stupor. He's going to show them that by dispensing with love and by obsessing instead over spiritual gifts, they have traded in a priceless wedding ring for a rubber band. They've traded what lasts forever for what is not going to last. So Paul is going to propose to them in verse 8, the perpetual nature of love. So two weeks ago, we saw the indispensability of love, that if we don't have love, we're nothing. Last week, we saw the activity of love, what love does, what love is defined as. And this week, we are seeing the perpetuity of love, the fact that love goes on and on forever. And that's what Paul is going to propose in verse 8, the perpetual nature of love and the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts. In verses 9 through 10, he's going to explain why spiritual gifts do not last. In verses 11 through 12, he's going to illustrate that for us. And then in verse 13, Paul is going to give us his final conclusion about love. So let's first look at the proposition in verse 8. Verse 8, Paul says, Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. We saw last week in verse 7 that love does what? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in the verses that we're looking at today, we're going to see that love, which is a commitment to the good of the other, goes on forever. So Paul sums up what he's already said in verses 4 through 7 and what he's going to say in verses 8 through 13 by those three words in verse 8. Love never fails. Love never fails. The love of God, that is his love for us, our love for him, and God's love of others through us will never be thwarted and it will never come to an end. Love never fails. It is perpetual. In contrast to the enduring nature of love, verse 8 says that if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Paul is saying here that though love will never go away, the spiritual gifts will go away. There is an expiration date on the spiritual gifts, but love has no expiration date. 
The Corinthians had gotten obsessed over the spiritual gifts, but not on love. They had fallen into using these gifts to exalt themselves, and when it came to these gifts, they were obsessed in particular over the gifts of tongues and the gifts of knowledge. Those were the ones they were very puffed up about. They were proud about their ability to speak in tongues. We're going to see this in chapter 14. And we've already seen that they were proud about their knowledge. They thought they knew it all. In chapter 12 and verse 31, Paul commanded them to be zealous about the greater spiritual gifts. And we saw in chapter 14, we looked at verse 1 and we looked at verse 39, there was a gift in particular that Paul wanted them to be zealous about, and that gift was prophecy. So they were obsessed about the gifts of tongues and knowledge, and Paul is wanting them to be zealous about the gift of prophecy. So that's probably why he highlights these three gifts here in verse 8. He doesn't want them to be overly preoccupied with these gifts, and these are the gifts that are at the center of their problems. So these are the ones he mentions. Paul probably has all of the spiritual gifts in mind when he says they're going to pass away. These are just the three ones that he chooses to represent spiritual gifts in general. As we've seen throughout this letter, the Corinthians are continuing to get everything backwards. They are overvaluing love, or excuse me, they are overvaluing the spiritual gifts and they're undervaluing love. So when Paul tells them that the spiritual gifts are going bye-bye, while love is going to remain forever, Paul is helping them to get their priorities straight. He says that the gifts of prophecy and knowledge will be done away with. That word for done away with, it's the word katargeo. And Paul uses that word several times in this letter. And he uses it, at least almost always, if not always, he uses it in eschatological context. What does that mean? Well, what's eschatology? It's the study of, theology is the study of God. Eschatology is the study of last things or end times. Paul uses this word throughout this letter to describe the relation of things to the end times. Let's, just to show you this, let's go to chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verses 26 to 29. Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. There's that word, katargeo. Nullify, do away with the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. On that final day, those who are hoping in their strength, hoping in their riches, hoping in their wisdom, they're going to be done away with because they didn't hope in the one who is wisdom itself, the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, 
nor of the rulers of this age who are katargeo, passing away. You know, your status as a king in this world does not ensure that you will be such in the next world. Chapter 6, verse 13. <clears throat> Paul says, food is, or he's quoting this slogan that the Corinthians were floating around. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food. But God will do away with, katargeo. God will do away with both of them. Our food and our relationship with food as it relates to our stomach, is going to end when we go into the ground. God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Next, let's go to chapter 15 and verse 24. Actually, let me start in verse 20, but we're going to read verses 20 through 26 of chapter 15. Paul writes there, verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished... There's that word, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished, katargeo, is death. So you see these, the relationship in which, um, between something and another thing that Paul, let me rephrase that. Paul uses this word when he's talking about the relationship of something to the end, or to the coming kingdom, or to the return of Christ. And he's doing the same thing in, in chapter 13. He's using this word in, in the same way. Prophecy, the gifts of prophecy and knowledge are not going to make it into the new heavens and the new earth. He uses this word four times in this passage. He uses a different word when he's talking about the gift of tongues. He doesn't use katargeho. He doesn't say they'll be done away with. He just says they'll cease. A different word. But he's likely just picking a different word to spice things up. He likely means the same thing because that is sandwiched between prophecy and knowledge which will be done away with. And Paul continues to use the done away with language throughout the rest of the passage. None of the gifts are going to persist into the new heavens and the new earth. But love will. Love will. Now why is this the case? Why aren't the spiritual gifts going to heaven with us? Well, that's where verses 9 to 10 come in. This is Paul's explanation. He's going to explain why it is that the spiritual gifts are not going to go to heaven with us. What does he say there? Verse 9. For, he's explaining, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Katargeo, done away. What was the purpose of the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge? Well, they both served to give believers truth that they did not know before. And that truth was intended to edify them, 
exhort them, console them. We saw this in chapter 14 and verse 3. Paul said, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That's what the purpose of those gifts was. They built up the believer. And that was also the purpose of the gift of tongues. When the gift of tongues was interpreted, it was to have the same effect. We saw that in chapter 14 as well. Or we will see it. Verse 6 of chapter 14. Paul says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Why? So that others may be edified or exhorted or consoled. That's the purpose of the gifts. They build up the believer. They supply what is lacking in the believer. And this is what all of the gifts are intended to do. All of the gifts, whether it's prophetic or teaching or serving or showing mercy, they're all meant to supply what is lacking within us, to build us up in the Lord. Because we are all lacking in Christ-likeness. That's why we need the gifts. They help us conform ourselves to the likeness of Christ. But, as you've all noticed, the gifts never quite get us all the way there, do they? They grow us toward perfect Christ-likeness, which is why we need them. But the growth is never finished in our lifetimes, is it? It'd be pretty cool if I could just preach one sermon and poof, your hair flies back and we're all just like the Lord Jesus in our character. But it doesn't work that way. On this side of heaven, we never come to the place where we're no longer lacking anything, where we no longer need to be built up or exhorted or consoled. The gifts help us down that road, but they never get us all the way there. They're partial in that way. They move us toward perfection, but they do not fully perfect us. In verse 10, Paul says, But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What does Paul mean when he says, when the perfect comes? Well, it's pretty clear that Paul is referring to the coming of Christ, who will make all things new. When he returns, he will do what to his people? He will perfect them. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, where we see this perfection take place when our Lord comes back. First John 3, verse 1, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's the perfection. That is when the perfect comes. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When Jesus comes back, the change will be instant. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The process of sanctification will be complete. Our journey toward perfect Christ-likeness and our characters will be finished. 
If we die before he gets back, that'll happen when we see him face to face in heaven. Or if we're here on earth and he comes back and we're raptured, that'll happen when we see him. Our characters will be changed immediately to be just like him. And not only that, but we will receive resurrected and glorified bodies just like his resurrected and glorified body. When that happens, Paul is saying in chapter 13, verse 10, there will no longer be any need for what is partial. We won't need the spiritual gifts to build us up and to move us down the road of sanctification because we will already be perfectly built up. We will already be perfectly sanctified. I'm not going to be preaching sermons in the new earth, calling people to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm not going to be preaching sermons saying, you got to follow the Lord better, you know, because the, everybody's going to be following the Lord perfectly. That would be the ultimate preaching to the choir. I'm not going to be doing that. The gift of showing mercy will not be needed because nobody is going to be impoverished or sick or dying. That gift won't be needed. The spiritual gifts are going to be phased out because they will be of no use in heaven. Just a quick clarification here. The absence of spiritual gifts in heaven doesn't mean that we're going to lack the abilities and characteristics that some of those gifts involve. For example, the fact that there's no gift of knowledge in heaven doesn't mean we're going to stop knowing things. For example, in chapter 13, where is it, verse 12, what does Paul say? When that day comes, I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. No gift of teaching doesn't mean we won't be speaking the truth to each other anymore. No gift of showing mercy doesn't mean we won't be merciful anymore. No gift of service doesn't mean we won't be serving anymore. It's just that none of us will have an imperfection or a weakness that needs to be compensated for by someone else's spiritual gifting. We won't need a prophet or a teacher proclaiming the word of God to us because we will be in the presence of the word of God himself. Now when Paul says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away, does this mean that all of the spiritual gifts are going to continue right up until the day that Jesus fully brings in the new creation? Well, I don't think that's an argument that Paul is making here. He seems to simply be saying that when Christ comes, the spiritual gifts will be done away. He's not commenting on whether or not all of those gifts make it up until that point in time. As we saw in chapter 12, it's the sovereign choice of God that determines who gets what gifts and when they get them. And as I showed a few weeks ago when we finished chapter 12, I, I believe the scriptures are pretty clear that some gifts, such as that of apostleship and prophecy, were intended by God to be done away with pretty early in the church history. Whereas other gifts such as teaching, hospitality, giving, serving, and showing ministry continue on today. So that is Paul's explanation of why love will last forever, but the gifts will not. That's his explanation for why the gifts will not last forever. Next, he will illustrate that in verses 11 through 12. He gives us two illustrations. The first one is in verse 11. He's helping us understand this idea that when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, 
I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. There are certain things from our childhood that we naturally do away with. Ketargeo, once we become adults. There are certain ways of speaking, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of reasoning that do not carry over. For example, the other night, my son Isaac was sitting on his high chair for dinner, and upon his tray landed a housefly. And from the way he was screaming bloody murder, you would have thought a great white was snapping his arm off. He doesn't understand yet that a housefly is not something to be afraid of. Hopefully, when he's an adult, he'll get that. But you and I, no matter how far along our walk with the Lord, no, no matter how far along we are on our walk with the Lord, compared to what we will be when we see the Lord face to face, we are as children now. The way we speak, the way we think, the way we reason, assisted even as we are by the spiritual gifts the Lord has blessed us with, the way we think and speak is still very partial and incomplete. We cannot fathom the difference between who we are now and who we will be then. So if we adopt the same mindset that the Corinthians had, that we've arrived, that is just foolishness. To brag about ourselves and to be swelled up with a sense of our own self-importance, which is the opposite of what love does, remember, but to brag and to be swelled up with a sense of my own self-importance, that's just foolish. That's like an eight-year-old kid thinking he knows everything and doesn't need the advice of his parents anymore. We look at such a kid and we shake our heads and we say, kid, you don't even have a clue what you're talking about. But that's us when we take on that attitude that I'm something, that I've arrived. The Lord looks at us compared with what we're going to be and he says, you don't have a clue. Paul gives us another illustration in verse 12. He says there, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. When you're driving down the highway and you go to make a lane change, you look in the mirrors, hopefully, to make sure there's no traffic coming up on you. And when you look out the right side and you look at your passenger side mirror, you'll see some text at the bottom of that mirror. And what does that say? Yeah. <laughs> Objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Objects are closer than they appear. So there's limitations to what we can learn just by looking in the mirror. Not only that, but when we were first learning how to drive, what was another limitation we were taught about our vehicle's mirrors? It didn't show everything. There's blind spots. That's why about 17 years ago when I was taking my driver's license test and I looked over my shoulder about this far to change lanes, the woman next to me dinged me for that because I didn't look far enough over. I wasn't clearing the blind spots. That little square of glass can't show you all that there is to see. And the spiritual gifts are like that, particularly the revelatory ones such as prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, they could only show so much. And we have the fruit 
of such revelation in our hands, the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are inerrant, and they are infallible, and they are sufficient for us to live a life of faith and godliness and to equip us for every good work, which is why we need to know this book frontwards and backwards. But we have to remember that we still only have an indirect knowledge of our Lord and our God. Our relationship with him now is like looking at someone and trying to get to know them through a mirror. It simply does not compare with how we are going to know him on that day when we see him face to face. Imagine if the only way you could get to know your spouse was by looking at them and talking to them by looking at them in a mirror. How you would know them under those conditions compared to how you know them now is night and day. How much more do you think the difference will be between how we know God now and how we will know him when we see him face to face? That day is coming when we will see him face to face. And when that day comes, we will know him fully, even as he fully knows us. The Lord knows us fully. He's not looking at us through a mirror. There's no obstacle in his knowledge of us. If you are trusting in Jesus today, he knows you through and through. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than anyone else knows you. He does not look at you as through a mirror. He looks at you as the one who has created you, the one who shed his blood on the cross for you, the one who now intercedes for you at the Father's right hand. And he knows you as the one who dwells inside of you through his Holy Spirit. But the day is coming when you will know him fully. That is something to think about. Think about how blessed you are to know him now, even just through a mirror dimly. Jesus is there by your side, night and day. You've never had a friend like him. He loves you the same. No matter how much your physical beauty has faded, no matter how many times you have stumbled along the straight and narrow path as you follow after him, he loves you the same. He's there for you when you need to confess your latest sin to him, and he doesn't wait around to forgive you. He forgives you immediately. He's there when you're faced with something that terrifies you, and he comforts you, and he upholds you. And every trial that you face, he's there with you, carrying you through it and transforming it into a blessing to make you more like him. Think of the joy and the satisfaction that you get from reading his word, from praying to him, from singing to him and fellowshipping with other believers. When you take the time to deny yourself and spend time with him, the satisfaction and the joy that you get from that, think of that. And then think of what it will be like when you see him face to face. Do you think that when you're looking at him face to face and he's looking at you, do you think that for one moment you will miss the dim little mirror through which you have been looking at him? All the gifts and talents that we sinfully take so much pride in now will be like nothing but shards of a broken mirror compared to how we will see him then. So there's no reason to be proud of where we're at right now. We're children compared to what we will be. In verse 13, Paul gives us his conclusion. 
He says, but now, faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, there's two main interpretations of this verse, and it's a little tricky to know which one is right, which one Paul meant. One view sees Paul as saying that love is greater than faith and hope because, like the spiritual gifts, faith and hope are also not going to be there in eternity, just love. And this interpretation is largely dependent on what Paul says about faith and hope in other scriptures. For example, let's uh, look at Romans 8, verse 24. Romans 8, verse 24, Paul says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Next, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. Second Corinthians 5, verse 7. There Paul says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So he's putting faith and sight at odds there. And then lastly, let's look at Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So in these three passages, Paul seems to suggest that faith and hope will not be needed in heaven because we will finally see with our own eyes what we have been believing and hoping for. Now what about the second major interpretation of, of this last verse of 1 Corinthians 13. Well, this view says that Paul is saying, Paul is saying that contrary to the spiritual gifts, faith, hope, and love will all continue to be exercised in heaven, but love is the greatest of these three. Now, I lean toward this view, and I'll explain why. I don't think Scripture is contradicting itself, otherwise I wouldn't hold this view, let me explain why I hold this view. What has the contrast been throughout this passage? That love continues on forever and the spiritual gifts do not. That is the contrast that Paul has been building throughout these verses. It's the temporary nature of spiritual gifts versus the permanence of love. In verse 13, when Paul says, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, He's maintaining that contrast. Spiritual gifts go away, but love abides forever. But Paul also says that faith and hope abide. If Paul does not mean that faith and hope abide forever, then he also is not meaning to say there that love abides forever. And we lose the contrast that Paul has been building throughout this entire passage. And it seems to kind of fall flat a little bit. So I take Paul to mean that faith, hope, and love, contrary to the spiritual gifts, will all remain on into eternity. But the greatest, even, of these three is love. 
by calling love greater than even the permanent gracious gifts of hope or faith, Paul is elevating love all the more. But again, I need to explain, how does this view fit with what Paul said elsewhere about faith and hope? Wouldn't he be contradicting himself? Well, I don't think so. It's only the unseeing elements of faith and hope that will be done away with in heaven. We won't cease to have faith and hope in Christ just because we see him face to face. We won't cease to trust in him or be confident in him and his plans for our eternity. It's not as though when we get to heaven we'll say, thanks for all your help, Jesus, but now that I see you, I'll take it from here. No, we won't be saying that. We will continue to trustingly depend upon him for every moment of our eternal existence. When we get to heaven, we will continue to have utter confidence in him that whatever decisions he makes will be best as we look forward to our future moments in eternity with him and the work there that he assigns for us. Whatever he gives me to do, I'll know. I'll have confidence that that is right and good. And remember what love is described as in verse 7. What does love do there? Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. If love is forever, then faith and hope are forever because love never loses faith. Love never loses hope. But in what sense, if this view is correct, in what sense is love greater? With the other view, it's pretty clear. Love goes forever, faith and hope do not. But if this view is correct, in what sense is love greater than faith and hope? Well, the word for greatest here in verse 13 is the same word we saw in chapter 12. And verse 1, when Paul said to be zealous for the greater gifts. And looking at that, to try to understand what he meant by being zealous for the greater gifts, we looked at chapter 14. And we saw there that what Paul meant by greater was gifts that built up others. And he compared prophecy to the gift of tongues. Tongues, uninterpreted, did nothing but built up yourself. It didn't build up anybody else. Prophecy, on the other hand, because it was understandable, built up others, and that was what made it greater than the gift of tongues. So when Paul says that out of the three permanent grace gifts of faith, hope, and love, that love is the greatest, he likely means that it is the greatest in the sense that it builds up others, others more than faith and hope. In exercising faith, what am I doing? I am receiving personal salvation that Christ has purchased for me by his righteous life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection. In exercising hope, I look forward to the day when my personal salvation will be consummated at the return of Christ. But in exercising love, I seek to point others to the salvation that they can have in Christ. I seek to point believers, other believers, toward the sanctification that they are to grow to, grow in in Christ. Faith and hope look to the good that God has done for me. Love seeks God's good for others. Not only that, but it is the love of God that has given us faith and hope. God did not have faith in us. God did not have hope 
that we could pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God saw us lying dead in our trespasses and sins. He saw us sinking underneath his wrath as we were headed for hell. It was God's love for us that sent his son to die on our behalf. And it was his love that gave us the gift of faith so that we could receive the salvation that Jesus had purchased for us. Love is the greatest. Let's pray.